Well, good morning. Our sermon text this morning is in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we're going to start reading in verse 1. We are not going to put the whole text on the screen this morning, so you will want to have a Bible with you so you can see it. Um, we will put a lot of verses up later, but at the beginning here, we won't throw it up uh, on that screen. Um, people have accused me before of saying, throw it up, so I'll try not to say that again. Uh, we will not put it up on the screen. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 7. I've been preaching through the book of Acts. That's what we typically do is preach through different books because we believe that all passages in the Bible are important. We don't want to skip them. Uh, but when you preach through books, that does mean that you have to deal with passages like we have here this morning, a bit more of a sobering type of passage in the book of Acts. We are actually in a little bit here going to read all of chapter 7, a lengthy portion. Hang in there. We'll just touch on parts of it then, but we will read it all. The book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. Acts tells the story of what happened after Jesus ascended back to heaven. Uh, This tells the story of how the early Christians then went out to tell people about Christ. Let's go ahead and pray as we get started here. Well, Lord God, we just uh, thank you for every opportunity to open your word. It's a blessing to be able to do it, and we pray for your help as we look at what is more of a sobering type of passage, Lord. Uh, In your word, we believe you put it here for our own edification. Pray for your help as we look at it, as we consider this theme this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, you say in the Bible, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So I would just trust this morning that those who are your sheep, they will hear your voice in the word and they will follow you. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. A man named Shabazz Bhatti, Christian in Pakistan, a country only 2% Christian, he dedicated his life to religious minorities. He became Pakistan's minister for national harmony. He lobbied against Pakistan's harsh Islamic blasphemy law. Uh, He worked for all religious minorities, including Christian uh, Christianity. He knew his life was in danger. Uh, In a video he made, he said, I believe in Jesus Christ who has given his own life for us and I am ready to die for a cause. Labeled as a blasphemer of Muhammad, in 2011 his car was sprayed with bullets taking his life. Annalena Tonelli, Christian woman, age 25, moved to Africa, founded a tuberculosis hospital, brought AIDS patients into her hospital saying they deserve to be treated as human beings, a move not welcomed in that area. In 2002, protesters threw stones through the hospital windows, chanting death to Annalena, and in 2003, working in her own hospital, she was shot in the head. 2015, 20 Egyptian Christians on a construction job in Libya, taken hostage by Islamic terrorists, given the chance to deny Christ and live, all 20 declared their faith in Christ and were beheaded. And those are just three of the more recent Christian martyrdoms. It is estimated that in the past 2,000 years, some 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith. 
increasing over time. A recent Newsweek article said, quote, Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than any time in history. But these martyrdoms, they should not shock us. Because Jesus said that it would happen. Said things like this, Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. John 16, 2, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And, and what we see here now in Acts chapter 7 is the very first Christian martyr. A man named Stephen. We met him in Acts 6. The early church in Jerusalem at this time was growing rapidly, so rapidly, they couldn't care for many of their widows. So the early church there in Jerusalem, they chose seven men to care for the widows, Stephen being one of the seven men. And Stephen was then apparently going out and preaching Christ to a Jewish synagogue there in Jerusalem. And the Jews did not like it. In Acts chapter 6, they dragged Stephen to the Sanhedrin, highest court in Israel, and and false witnesses then accused him of speaking against the Jewish temple and law. And Acts 7 is now what followed. Let's go ahead and read it. Acts 7, 1. And the high priest said there in the Sanhedrin at this trial, are these things so, these accusations against the temple and law? And Stephen then said, and he's now going to trace the Old Testament books, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave Abraham no inheritance in this land, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that Abraham's offspring, his offspring, would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine through all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. 
At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds." When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I've come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers, so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. First verse of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Amen. Thank you for bearing with that. That's the word of the Lord, an important part of God's word. That right there is the very first Christian martyr. There have been 70 million or so since Stephen. And as we look at Stephen's death today, we'll consider three things. One, the martyr's witness. Two, the martyr's death. And number three, the martyr's power. Point number one, the martyr's witness. You, know, you think of Stephen right here. He, he has a chance to defend himself and standing before the, this, this Sanhedrin, he gives this some the 50 verse monologue. This is the longest speech in the book of Acts, basically tracing most of Israel's Old Testament history and ultimately, Stephen here, bearing witness about Christ. Our word martyr comes from the Greek word martus, which means witness. A martyr is one who gives the ultimate witness unto death, and that is Stephen. You know, some people look at this speech and say, man, that guy knows how to ramble uh, when he preaches. Never really did get to a point there. But if you look carefully at what Stephen said, you will see several key themes, several threads that kind of weave their way through that that speech there. The themes are the themes of temple, uh, law, and leaders. One theme here is the theme of the temple. Stephen was accused back in Acts chapter 6 of speaking against the temple, of blaspheming God's temple. In Jerusalem, which God had given the Jews years earlier. That temple in in Old Testament days was the place on earth where, where God manifested His presence most clearly. That was the place where the Jews could go to meet with God. And to speak against that temple to this Sanhedrin council, this council of men standing in front of Stephen, well, that was pure blasphemy. That was That was speaking against God Himself. And Stephen... When he had preached earlier to to this Jewish synagogue out in Jerusalem, well, he probably had said some things about that temple there in Jerusalem. He didn't speak against the temple in blasphemy like they charged him. No, he knew the temple was important, but Stephen probably did speak against the way the the, the, the Jews at this time viewed the temple. 
The, the Jews at this time in history, they viewed the temple in Jerusalem in a certain way. Many Jews thought that temple was the only place on earth where, where God's presence was. And only the Jews could meet with God there. So he was really an exclusively Jewish God. That's how they viewed the temple. That's how many of them viewed God. And one of Stephen's main points in this sermon is that God is not just in that temple in Jerusalem, but God is everywhere. And he is a God for all people. You know, Stephen traces the Old Testament here to show that God's presence, God's presence was never confined to just one temple in, in Jerusalem. That theme pops up everywhere. If you look at verse 2 with, with Abraham, starts right at the beginning. Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Not in Israel. Not in the temple, but a foreign land, God appeared. And when Stephen then talks about Joseph, six times, six times, Stephen Stephen mentions the word Egypt. He is just emphasizing over and over again that Joseph was not in Israel. But look at verse 9. And the patriarch, Stephen said, Joseph's brothers, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But what? God was with him. Not in the temple, but in Egypt, God was with Joseph. Then look at Moses, verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses, where? In the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers. Verse 33, then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, Moses, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Not in the temple, but in the wilderness, holy ground, because God was there. And Stephen then talks here about the tabernacle that Moses built before the temple. The the, the tabernacle where God first manifested his presence very clearly. But where was that tabernacle? Well, Stephen says it was moving through the wilderness, not in Israel. God was there. And then he finally, Stephen here, moves to the temple where God also manifested his presence clearly after the tabernacle. But even then, even after the temple was there in in Israel, even after God manifested his presence there, Well, look at verse 47. Stephen says this. It was Solomon who built a house for God, that that temple. Yet, he says, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And then he quotes from the book of Isaiah, Old Testament book, where God said this, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord. And you, you can see what, what God was saying there in, in Isaiah. I, I will never ultimately live in just one house. I will never ultimately live just there. All of heaven is my throne. All of earth is, is my footstool. My presence fills this universe. 
Yes, God, God graciously chose to manifest his presence for a time in that temple. But listen, God was never confined, never limited, never restricted to just that temple in Israel. God is an omnipresent everywhere God, not just a God for Jews, but for all people. God is everywhere. You know, one of the catechism questions we taught our our youngest two kids on vacation this summer, the question, where is God? And the answer, God is everywhere. (laughs) And one of my kids would then typically say something like, so God is bigger than Hulk? (laughs) Followed by about 15 minute discussion on all things Avengers. But the point (laughs) is that God is simply everywhere. And, and, and it wasn't just that the temple couldn't contain all of God. No, Stephen, he also knew that with the coming of Christ, well, that temple's ultimate purpose had now been fulfilled. That that temple all along was just a foreshadowing of a better temple to come. God's presence for a time dwelt in in that building. But once Jesus came, God's presence now dwelt in Christ, the much greater temple. Where people from all people groups, not just Jews, could now meet with God. Now people all over the world who wanted to meet with God, just go to Jesus. And man, now that Jesus has ascended back to, to heaven, where does God now dwell on earth today? Most clearly? Where, where is the temple now today? Well, it's, it's the body of Christ. It's, it's Christians, the, the, the church. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says this, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. God's presence now is still filling this entire universe, but God is dwelling most clearly now in the body of Christ, this new temple all over the world. And listen, Stephen, he had probably preached some of those things about this temple there in Jerusalem. That's one theme here, the temple. And another theme here in Stephen's speech is law. You know, back in in Old Testament days, God gave Moses on on Mount Sinai some laws. God God gave Moses some some moral laws, including the Ten Commandments, and and some ceremonial laws that would govern the the Jewish sacrifices, and lots of other laws. And and Stephen was also accused, back in Acts chapter 6, of speaking against both Moses and God's law. But listen, man, it it is clear. When you look at this sermon, it is clear that Stephen has a deep respect for both Moses and God's law. Just look at some of this. Verse 20. Stephen's first words here about Moses. He says, at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And, and it's Stephen's way of saying that Moses, even at birth, had God's favor. And, and when God later called to Moses from the bush, look, look what Stephen says in the middle of verse 35. He says, this man, Moses, 
God sent as both ruler and redeemer. I mean, he's got nothing but, 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 but adulation for Moses, a deep respect here for Moses. And, and you also find in this sermon a deep respect for God's law. If you look at the end of verse 38, Stephen, Stephen says this. He says, Moses received living oracles to give to us, referring to God's law. Stephen's words, those laws are living words from the living God. See, Stephen, he hadn't blasphemed Moses or the law, but once again, just like with the temple, Stephen, when, when he had been preaching earlier to this Jewish synagogue, he did probably say some things about the law of God because Stephen knew with the coming of Christ, those Old Testament laws had also been perfectly fulfilled in Christ. That's one reason why Jesus came to fulfill or obey God's laws because we, the human race, had not obeyed God's laws. So God sent Jesus as a man to fulfill them in our place, and he did. He obeyed perfectly all of God's laws, those moral laws, including the Ten Commandments. Well, Jesus lived a perfect life. Those ceremonial laws that governed all the sacrifices, we fulfilled those too. Jesus giving his own body as a spotless sacrificial lamb, the one and only supreme sacrifice fulfilling all other sacrifices. And, and Jesus fulfilled every other Old Testament law as well. And everyone who now trusts in Christ in faith, man, you cling to Christ in faith. And the Bible says that Christ's perfect righteousness is now credited to you simply through faith in Christ. You are now righteous, not because you obey perfectly, but because Christ did. That hymn, man, one of my my, my favorite hymns, Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Thou must save, and thou alone Christ must save in Christ alone because Christ alone is the only one who's fulfilled the law's demands. And Stephen had probably preached some of that to this Jewish synagogue. So first this theme of temple, then there's this theme of law. And man, Stephen's final and primary theme here, I believe, is the theme of leaders. And man, listen. With this theme of leaders, as Stephen begins to touch on this thing right here, Stephen now turns the tables on this, this, this court of the Sanhedrin. They have accused him of several things. He has defended himself in different ways here in this sermon. But with this final theme of leaders, Stephen now goes on the offensive. The accused now becomes the accuser. I don't know if you ever had a chance to to watch any video of Muhammad Ali when he used to box. But the way he would box is he really, for the first several several rounds of his fight, would just kind of lean back into the ropes and he would just take punches. He called it the rope-a-dope. And it just take punch after punch after punch. But after a while, after his opponent had punched himself out, Muhammad Ali then came off the ropes swinging. 
And Stephen, here with this theme of leaders, he now comes off the ropes swinging. Stephen now accuses the Jews throughout history. He accuses this Sanhedrin here, all these Jewish leaders. He, he accuses these, these Jews of repeatedly rejecting God's chosen leaders. This theme of rejection runs throughout his sermon over and over and over again. It starts with Joseph. If you look at, at verse 9, Stephen says, and the patriarchs, the, these are Joseph's uh, 11 brothers, the, the Jewish forefathers, Stephen says, were jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with Joseph. So just look at that. God's chosen leader, Joseph, God with Joseph, and yet he was rejected by the Jewish forefathers. And Stephen then says a similar thing multiple times about this man, Moses. Another of God's chosen leaders, he was chosen to rule, to redeem Israel out of Egypt. And Stephen says here that Moses, when he was 40, he saw an Egyptian oppressing an Israelite. And Moses defended the Israelite, killing the Egyptian. And then look at verse 25. Moses, at that time, supposed that his brothers, his fellow Jews, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And the following day then, Stephen says... Moses saw two Jews fighting now. Moses again tried to intervene, but look what Stephen says, verse 27. But the man, the Jew, who was wronging his neighbor, this fellow Jew, the man thrust Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And, for emphasis, Stephen repeats it. Verse 35, if you look at it. This Moses, he said, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. God's chosen ruler, redeemer, judge, and yet rejected by the Jews, and the rejection continues. Stephen then talks about Moses receiving these living oracles, the, the law, but I want you to see the very next verse. If you look at the end of verse 38, Moses received living oracles to give to us, but, very next verse, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. And Aaron then made the gold calf. God's chosen leader, Moses. And yet Stephen says multiple times that the Jews rejected him. And Stephen then goes on here to mention several more times in history where the Jews had in some way rejected God's chosen leaders, God's prophets, God's, God's kings. And Stephen then 
At the end of this sermon, you, you ever hear of someone going for the jugular? Going for, for the kill at the end of, of the sermon? Man, Stephen does it. You talk about a preacher bringing a sermon home, one final application that kind of blows up the room? Well, here it is. Stephen now brings this rejection theme all the way to Christ. If you look at verse 51, his final application, he's looking out at the Sanhedrin, this council now, and he says, you stiff-necked people. Stubborn. Uncircumcised in heart. Hard hearts. The Bible had always talked in the Old Testament about God wanting, wanting not just their bodies, but their hearts to be circumcised. To be, to, to, to be fresh hearts before Him. You uncircumcised in heart and in ears, hardened, can't hear. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Always reject God's chosen leaders. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of God's chosen prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And all through the Bible, the major leaders in Israel's history, they had all prophesied about a coming righteous one, a Messiah to come, the supreme leader of, of God's people. Even Moses himself had announced beforehand the coming of this righteous one. Did you catch what Stephen added to this sermon in verse 37? If you look at it. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. That was a prophecy from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses prophesying about a coming righteous one, the, the Messiah, a prophet like him, a prophet who would be much better than him. All the major leaders in Israel's history, they had announced beforehand this coming righteous one, but Stephen's main point in this sermon is this, you Jews have always rejected, you have thrust aside God's chosen leaders. You, you, you Sanhedrin, you, your, your forefathers always persecuted, killed God's leaders who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah. And even worse, Stephen says here, you have now killed the righteous one himself. You have murdered the Messiah, the Son of God. And Man, here's the clincher that does it. If you look at verse 53, last line of the sermon, Stephen now says this, You, Sanhedrin, you and your forefathers who received the law from Moses as delivered by angels, and you did not keep it. Who's the blasphemer of God's law here? The violator of God's law it's not me, but you. Moses talked about this prophet to come, Jesus, and you always rejecting God's chosen leaders. 
you rejected Moses and you rejected the prophet or this, this righteous one he prophesied about and killed him. And that's Stephen's witness. There it is, the, the sermon. You could do a lot more with it. Basic themes in there of temple, of, of law, and this last one of leaders at the risk of his life here. Stephen on trial before this highest court in Israel. By the power of the Spirit, he preaches Christ. And you know what he was doing even right here? He was giving even these men another opportunity to repent and trust in Christ and be saved. Right here, at this point, standing before the Sanhedrin, you killed him. And he's allowing God to bring conviction and possibly their hearts will turn and they will be saved. He preaches Christ, the martyr's witness. That's point one. Point two, other two will go much more quickly now. Point two, the martyr's death. You look at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And the Greek word means they were literally cut to the heart. They were sawn in two. And it was probably some conviction. But they hardened their hearts against it. They are infuriated. This is a visceral reaction from these Jewish leaders. Luke says next, they ground their teeth at Stephen. Just the picture there of, 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 of wild beasts snarling at Stephen in, in just a violent rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And you talk about God giving you grace in the moment. That is some grace from the Lord God in the moment for his servant Stephen. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Stephen now has a vision of some sort, or he is just somehow allowed to see into heaven, and he sees something remarkable. The Bible always portrays Jesus as sitting at the right hand of the Father. But Stephen now sees Jesus standing, arms open, maybe, with a smile on his face, ready to receive Stephen into his eternal home. But that statement by Stephen, I see Jesus at the right hand of God, as far as the Sanhedrin was concerned, it was just more blasphemy, putting anyone equal with God. So verse 57 says that they cried out, they stopped up their ears, which is what the Jews did in order to hear no more blasphemy. They rushed at Stephen, they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. It was not a legal execution. So all of these who were upset at Stephen for supposedly blaspheming the law have just broken the law. The Romans had taken away the Jews' right to perform their own capital punishments. This was not legal. This was a lynching, mob violence, and a brutal way for Stephen to die. Death in, in, in a stoning is so easy to read over it in the Bible. It was, it was ultimately caused by multiple blows to the skull from, from hundreds of rocks and even broken glass. And once the man or the woman was down bigger boulders to crush the skull. It was a long, hot work for those who did 
the stoning. The death did not come quickly, so they shed their outer garments, which Luke says these men did here, stripping to the waist and stoning Stephen. But man, so many Christians, when they die with a strong faith in Christ, man, so many Christians die so well. John Wesley's final words, here they are. The best of all, God is with us. The best of all, God is with us. The best of all, God is with us. Farewell. Or Adoniram Judson, famous missionary to Burma, suffering intensely at death, said, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. You kids know that joy. I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. And Stephen now says this, if you look at verse 59, and as they were stoning him, can you imagine what that would have felt like? And the emotions running through Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's amazing. His last words, words of forgiveness for the people throwing the rocks, falsely accused him, killing him, words of forgiveness. And man, you just step back and look at this all the way through these last hours of Stephen's life. Stephen has looked so much like Christ, a very similar suffering like Christ. You know, Jesus, just weeks earlier, Jesus had stood before the same council. He had also been falsely accused. He had been accused of blasphemy. Jesus was also dragged out of the city. And he was killed. And moments before he died, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Stephen has just walked down that same path. Stephen in his death now looks a lot like Christ. Stephen here, when you picture what just happened... This Sanhedrin also killed Jesus. So, so Stephen has just given the Sanhedrin one more taste of Christ himself. Stephen loving them. Stephen, Stephen forgiving them all the way to death just like Christ. And, and please hear me on this. Every Christian on this planet who endures persecution for Christ, martyred for Christ... Clinging to Christ in faith, loving, forgiving to the end. Well, every Christian who dies like that to the watching world, that also tastes a little bit like Christ. That is just a small, visible picture of what Christ himself went through. John Piper says this. says, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world now, to be made visible to the world now through the afflictions of his people. Since Christ is no longer on earth, Christ wants his body, the church, to reveal his sufferings in its sufferings. This is why Paul spoke of his scars as the marks of Jesus. Because in Paul's wounds, people could somehow see Christ's wounds. When any Christian suffers for Christ, loving, forgiving like Christ, 
this watching world in those wounds can, can somehow catch a little picture of Christ's wounds, a small taste of the sufferings of Christ himself for a fallen world. The martyr's death. That's point two. And point number three, the martyr's power. You know, you can look, you you, you can look at this martyrdom, or or you can look at the some 70 million other martyrdoms that have taken place on this planet, and you can say, nothing good could ever come of that. That is a complete loss for God's cause in this world. And that is never true. Ever. Christ was martyred, and that was a huge win for the kingdom of God. And and God will cause every martyrdom ultimately to further his purpose in this world. Listen, every, every martyrdom has ultimately been ordained or decreed by God. The, the Bible says in no uncertain terms that our suffering in this life, our, our martyrdoms, have been appointed by God. 1 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, we are destined for affliction. Now, we don't know how that works all the time, but please hear me. The Bible doesn't present it like Satan just kind of slipped in and snuck one in on God and killed a Christian. Oh, no, God wasn't looking and a Christian died. That's not how the Bible presents martyrdom or or the sufferings of Christians. The Bible very clearly states that the suffering of the martyrdoms of Christians is ultimately ordained, decreed. It's appointed by God or destined for Afflictions, and, and, and why, why in the world would God appoint a martyrdom? Why would he do that? Well, here's one reason. Because Christian martyrdoms are extremely powerful. They are extremely powerful. Martyrdoms are powerful for the Christians still living who see and hear about that martyrdom. It is a a known fact that when Christians in the first and second century, when they were killed in the Roman Colosseum, they were thrown to lions, they were burned at the stake. When those Christians died well, standing for Christ, loving, forgiving to the end, it just caused the remaining Christians to be even bolder in preaching Christ, to be even bolder in, in their own deaths. When Christians died well in martyrdom, it just strengthened the, the remaining Christians. And, and martyrdoms also caused Christians to spread out into new areas with the gospel. And we, we see that right here. The early church at this point was, was, was really just in Jerusalem, kind of huddled up there in Jerusalem. But Stephen's death is now like this explosion. Just sends Christians everywhere. If you look again at Acts 8.1, the middle of the verse, after Stephen dies, there arose on that day a great 
persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And what, what was the result? And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And you know what happens? Well, those scattering Christians, well, they take the name of Christ with them when they go. They take Christ everywhere because of Stephen's death. John Piper says this, The suffering of the church is used by God to reposition the missionary troops in places they might not have otherwise gone. And martyrdoms also, you know what they tend to do? They tend to draw even more Christians into the mission field. You would think that somebody was martyred and fewer Christians would sign up for something like that. That's not the way it works. When a Christian is martyred, typically more Christians then end up in the mission field. When Wycliffe missionary Chet Bitterman was executed by a Colombian guerrilla group, in the year following his death, applications for overseas missions with Wycliffe doubled doubled after the, mar- the, the martyrdom of Chet Bitterman. Martyrdoms are powerful. They're, they're powerful for Christians. But listen, martyrdoms, they are also extremely powerful for non-Christians. Even for those non-Christians who, who are doing the killing. When, when a Christian dies, like Christ, loving and, and forgiving to the end, well, as I already said, the, the watching world gets a little taste of the sufferings of, of Christ himself and, and the sufferings of the body of Christ now, which is powerful for an unbeliever to see. But you know what else happens when, when a Christian dies? When a Christian chooses Christ over life itself? The watching world gets a taste of the supreme value of Jesus Christ. Every time a Christian chooses death rather than deny Christ, do you know what that Christian is saying with his or her own death? Christ is better. Christ is better. Christ is better than everything this life can give me. Jesus Christ is more valuable than anything in this present world. That Christian is proclaiming with his or her very life, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Because Christ is better. And I trust that Jesus and all I find him to be after my death, that will be far more valuable than anything this life could ever offer. I choose Christ. Martyrdom is one of the most powerful expressions of the supreme value of Jesus Christ. There was a man, George Otis, who said, Will the Muslim world ever be one without Christian martyrs? Probably not. Because the Muslim world needs to see that Christians believe Christ is better than all other things. They are dying for a false god. And they will need at some point to see Christians dying for the one true God. And many non-Christians, man, when they see the value of Christ, they see the value of Christ in a Christian's martyrdom. You know a lot of those non-Christians have later become Christians. We see it here. Luke mentions twice here a man named Saul. 
Acts 8.1 says Saul approved of Stephen's ex- execution. Acts 7.58, Luke says those who threw stones laid their garments at Saul's feet. Saul was there, and Saul will soon become a Christian, the Apostle Paul. And I believe that Stephen's death right here was one of the primary reasons he will ultimately come to Christ. He's not ready yet, but I think this had a profound effect on Saul. Stephen, seeing Stephen die here like Christ, demonstrating with his death the supreme value of Christ, one of the primary reasons, I believe, why Saul will ultimately come to Christ in faith. And that has happened countless times in human history. When those non-Christians in the Roman Colosseum, when they were killing those Christians, martyring those Christians, and they saw them die well with faith in Christ, giving their lives for Christ, believing Christ was better, well, it is a known fact that many of those non-Christians later became Christians because of what they saw in those martyrdoms. You remember those 20 Egyptian Christians I talked about earlier who were beheaded in Libya? Well, there were actually 21 men executed that day, not 20. One of them, though, was not an Egyptian. They think he was from Ghana, and he was originally not a Christian. But when those 20 Egyptian Christians all had the chance to deny Christ and live but instead declared their faith in Christ and were beheaded, when they got to that man from Ghana at some point in this whole process, it is reported that he then said, their God is my God. And he was beheaded with them. Now we don't know everything that happened there, but it's very possible that a non-Christian seeing the faith of believers going towards their death, he was convinced that Jesus is better than all other things. And he gave his life, their God is my God. Christian martyrdom is extremely powerful. And you know what every martyr would now say after death? Don't weep for me. Do not weep for me. Because you know what a martyr gets the second they die? They get instant glory. Infinite joy in the presence of Christ. His arms wrapped around them. Welcome home, my faithful servant. And listen, I'll end with this. Christians today need to talk about martyrdoms. And the martyrdom of Christians. We need to talk about suffering for Christ. It is biblical. It is in the Scriptures for a reason. Jesus promised that it would happen. We see it right here in this passage. This text, Acts 7, this is a martyrdom text. And if you preach it in any other way, just focusing on the sermon and missing the martyrdom, you miss the point. He is killed like Jesus said they would be killed. It is a martyrdom text. And if you and I don't talk about martyrdom now, if we do not talk about suffering now, If we don't prepare for it, you will not be ready when it comes. Richard Wormbrand suffered greatly in a Romanian prison. And when he was released from prison, he taught a confirmation class of young boys and girls. And before Richard Wormbrand would confirm those young boys and girls as Christians, he would take them to the zoo, to the lion cage, and say, quote, Your fathers were thrown before such beasts for their faith. You will suffer too. Decide here and now if you wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. And Richard Wormbrand said, 
They had tears in their eyes when they said yes to Christ. And Wormbrand later said, if you wait to prepare yourself until they have put you in prison, it will be too late. You will not be able to stand. And so many Christians, so many churches in America, it's like put your head in the sand and act like it doesn't happen. It does happen. God said it would happen. God may, it may happen to us. Think about it, consider it now. We have a youth baptism this week. And I will say to all of you youth that I'm looking at right now, that is something you need to consider. You consider Stephen right here being stoned to death. You, you look into that lion's cage and, and you consider, if I suffer like this, if I suffer like that, will I still be standing for Christ? And you determine... You determine there if you will pledge your allegiance to Christ. Jesus said we are to first count the cost. And we don't ask people to count the cost. We don't ask them to count the cost. Come to Jesus, He'll make you happy. And then they end up suffering and they walk from Christ. Believing they are still Christians after they walk. And they're not. I tell my children all the time, yes, it's a simple faith in Christ by which you are saved. But please hear me, if you ever walk from Christ, that proves you were never saved. Because a Christian is not just someone who starts out, but holds out. So go there. Go there. And I encourage you. I encourage you. You, all of us. Picture Christ, Stephen stoning here and decide here and now if you wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. And if and when your suffering does come, man, may God give you the grace to trust in Christ. May God give you the grace to stand in Christ. May God give you the grace to open your mouth and preach Christ. And may you look up and see Christ with some sort of Holy Spirit born vision with His arms stretched out ready to welcome you home to your eternal paradise. Jesus says, rejoice, leap for joy, great is your reward in heaven. Blessed are the martyrs. Well, Father, we just bless your holy name. Your ways are not our ways. Your ways are not our ways, Lord God. They're just not. We constantly try to make your ways into our ways, and we constantly try to get you to do it the way we would do it. But, oh God, so much of what you do is a mystery. You've revealed some things to us, yes, and we're thankful for what you've revealed, but so much is still hidden to us, Lord God, including this mystery of suffering and of martyrdom. But God, we do not believe you ever lose. Even in the death of Christ, it looked like a horrible loss, and you won. And so, Father, we give us faith. Give us faith to believe it. Give us faith to trust. And I just pray, Father, for everybody in this church. Lord God, I just pray for everybody here that there will be a counting of the cost. There will be a looking out there and in, 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 in envisioning of stoning or of persecution or of some sort of martyrdom. And Lord God, there would be a consideration at that point. Am I willing to go there? Am I willing to pass through that? Can I pass through that, Lord God? I pray you to help us to count the cost now. And in this church, Christ Redeemer Church, you would raise strong Christians. You would raise strong Christians, not strong in ourselves, Lord God. We're so weak. Lord God, you'd raise people strong in you, strong by the Holy Spirit. We would not go the ways of this world and begin to present a watered-down Christianity, but we would preach a tough Christianity, a deep Christianity, deep faith in Christ, a joy in Christ, the gentleness of Christ, but also the toughness of Christianity. If anyone wants to be with me, let him renounce himself, pick up his cross, his own killing instrument, and follow me. Lord God, go deep in our hearts with truth. That's what builds strong Christians. That's what builds uh, faithful Christians. So go deep, we pray.
And we just thank you, Lord, for this chapter here with Stephen. Pray for your help, Lord God. Pray for your help. Even in the sobering chapter, you do a work in our hearts through it. We thank you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.